of Genesis, Genesis chapter 2. Guest, welcome. We're so glad that you're here today. Pray that God has already blessed you through the time of worship. And now we're in a series about the family. Uh, this is our third sermon in the series, so I am going to review just a little bit because uh, I, I feel like it's critical for those who are just walking in to get a perspective on what could be a controversial topic. I, I know every topic about the family is controversial these days. Um, it doesn't matter which direction you want to go, it's going to stir up some controversy somewhere. But I do want to uh, provide the premise, um, David, if you could help me out here, buddy. Um, I do want to provide the premise from Ephesians 3, verses 14 and 15, where Paul is praying, and this is an important prayer for us because this is the prayer where I close the benediction. This is the beginning of that prayer. He says, For this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Everything that has to do with family originates with God. All right? This is really critical if we're going to be at a place of agreement, is that family originates with God. We don't create God in our image. We are created in the image of God. We, he created family. He created husbands. He created wives. He created the whole children aspect. God is the originator of all family. You got that? That's really important uh, if we're going to be in agreement. Problem is, um, when man fell, when Eve saw in the garden that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it, and she also gave to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. This is the premise from the first week. Sin is appealing to us. We are either governed by our experience and our conscience, or we're governed by the Word of God and the Spirit of God. Uh, again, this is a critical foundation for how you develop a worldview, how you look at everything around you, how you judge, how you choose, how you um, make your way in this world is going to either be determined by your experience and your conscience. I like it. It looks good. It feels right. I think this is right. I'm not. You with me? And the problem is, as we've learned, you cannot trust your experience or your conscience uh, because we all, in this sense, would end up in a place where we could do whatever we like. If my conscience leads me here, then it's okay for me to do this. If my experience leads me here, it's okay for me to do this. That's the age, though, we're living in. Our culture is dictating to us what our conscience should feel. As a result, we've got a whole way of doing things. I would say we have to come back to the standard that God's Word and His Spirit direct us. God's Word and His Spirit direct us. Now, here's the challenge. What is God's Word and God's Spirit speaking to us? We need to come to an understanding of His Word and His Spirit. We're looking at what does it mean to have family within this context. So, as I said, God has entrusted me and Kathy with five souls in our family, uh, three boys and two girls. Um, the boys are now either in adulthood or quickly approaching adulthood. The girls are uh, in high school, so they are getting, getting there as well. The important question 
Kathy and I have tried to answer with our children over and over and over again is what does it mean to raise godly men and godly women? What does it mean to be a boy? What does it mean to be a girl beyond the, the, the strict aspects of biology? Do you know boys and girls are different? Did you all know that, that boys and girls are different? Just this past week, let me give you an example. Past week, a week and a half ago, one of my daughters, which will be clear in this picture, was in my office studying. I come into my office, and she's written me a note. I love you, Annalise. As she was studying, it was on my board. I opened my board. There's, there's this sweet little note from my daughter. One of my sons was also in my office this past week. He left me a note. This is the difference between the way boys and girls communicate. I love you, Dad. Annalise, loser. Thanks for the H2O. That's what it says below. They stole a bottle of water. Not only is he calling me a loser, but he's stealing from me as well. I know it's a term of endearment and affection, but it's just the difference between the way boys and girls operate. But what does it mean? as we struggle in this day and age with the definitions of masculinity and femininity. Um, You may have noticed in the news over the last month or two that the 1976 decathlon winner, which is considered the greatest athlete in the world at the time, 1976 decathlon winner Bruce Jenner is undergoing some sort of sex change, um, gender identity crisis. In the city of Houston last year, they passed an ordinance that had to do with males and females. The, the, the mayor of Houston, who is a woman, uh, helped pass an ordinance in which uh, a male who feels like, uh, whose uh, gender he feels like is more female, can now use female bathrooms. Now, see, I don't want my teenage daughters going into a bathroom where there's a male who is gender confused. Now, that's, this is my conscience and my culture speaking. But how do we appeal to God's word, to what he says, within the context and topic of an American culture that is vastly, vastly changing? There's probably been no more radical, uh, quick change in a culture than what we've seen over the past 10 to 20 years. I mean, Barack Obama, when he was elected president just six years ago, he, he articulated a position in which he believed in the traditional definition of marriage as being between one man and one woman. Today, if you're a politician within Washington and you hold up that definition, you're going to be targeted. How do we... And and again, I don't want to come across as judgmental. I, I want to say this with all sincerity of heart. Every single one of us in this room is broken by sin in some way. There is not a one of us who has not been broken by the effects of sin. We're just broken in different ways. So let us not look down on one group who's broken in one way as if we have never been broken. We need grace. We need love. We need the power of the gospel to transform lives. So we start with the premise that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God is the center of everything, not us. Now, this is a crucial truth for us in developing a worldview is who is at the center of everything. 
is all of this about me and for me, or is all of this about him and for him? I, begin, I believe the way the Bible is worded from beginning to end, first to last, it's all about God. It's all about his plan and his purpose. He is the point of everything, not us. In Genesis 1.27, it said, So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. We are all created in the image of God, male and female. We are equal in dignity and worth and value, no matter what our gender, no matter what our race, no matter what background we come from, no matter how much money we are, we are all of the same value and dignity and worth. Last year, there was an um, instance in Spain where a woman contracted Ebola. And so uh, she contracted Ebola. They put her husband in quarantine and they euthanized her dog. Uh, for those of you who don't know, that means they put him down. Mass protests broke out across Spain. Why? Because they put the dog down. To me, I mean, I understand they could have put the dog in quarantine rather than putting the dog down, but the, the value that we have raised animals to is almost of human dignity and worth. As I said last week, I have much more in common with the little girl in Haiti of a different skin color who could barely uh, wear her clothes because they were so big on her, and I know left that church and went to some impoverished place. I have much more in common with her than I do the Ross's dog, Gracie. Much more. We recognize that there's a difference between males and females, but at the same time, we have to say we all together are created in the image of God. But what does it look like? What is it that makes a man a man and a woman a woman? Beyond the simple definitions of biology. And let me just say this as I'm leading into this discussion. I'm looking at specific angles from the creation story as it relates to Adam and Eve and then kind of pushing it out a ways to look at our relationship. This is this is not a comprehensive, all-encompassing, about-everything sermon. Are you with me? In other words, if you push it out too far and, and, and extend it to every single relationship on the planet, it, there are other pictures in the Bible. There are other metaphors. There are other words. But I'm looking at from the creation story, what does God say about us? Not only that, what does it say about the specific hurdles that all of us face as a result of sin? And then how can we overcome those hurdles? So last week, as I looked at what does it mean to be a man, I used the term headship because it's a, it's a biblical word used in Corinthians and Ephesians and Titus. Uh, even the idea is used in Genesis. But I didn't look at headship from the, from the aspect of the man is in control. As a matter of fact, I think the man in control, the man ruling model, the man demanding model, the, the, the woman is subservient to the man, it's all a result of the fall. I believe we were created for teamwork, as we're going to see this morning. And I believe that really what does it mean to be a head, the headship role of a man is that he's providing spiritual direction, he's providing physical care, and he's providing sacrificial love. Those definitions, to me, speak to what does it really mean to be a man. 
sacrificing his life, being a man of spirit and in truth, and providing physical care. But as a result of the fall, men have gone to two extremes, either very selfish passivity, I'm not going to do anything, I'm not going to help, I'm not going to direct, I'm not going to do anything, or selfish aggression. I'm going to rule, I'm going to dominate, I'm going to abuse, I'm going to demand. But that there's a redemption that comes through Jesus Christ and the gospel. The power of God is transformational. So, today, I want to talk about what does it look like to be a woman from a biblical worldview. And in doing so, again, I want, you, I want to ask you to stay with me to, to the very end of the sermon as I, I look at some specific aspects. So, today, today you've got a 56-year-old male uh, discussing what is the purpose of a, a, a woman, what are a woman's specific pitfalls, and how to overcome those pitfalls. What could possibly go wrong? Here we go. Number one, let's affirm the original purpose of woman. Affirm the original purpose of woman. Back in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Down in verse 20 of chapter 2, but for Adam, no suitable, there's that word again, helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bones of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The key word that we're going to look at under woman's original purpose is the word helper. In a sense, in the garden, there were all sorts of animals that could help Adam. There was a horse, an oxen that could pull a plow. There were dogs that could be his companions and other pets. But none could help Adam fulfill the commission to reign over the good land. God had placed man in the garden and said, I want you to have dominion over the land. I want you to subdue it. I want you to to do all of these things. But when God looked at Adam, he said, there's no one really a helper that's suitable for him. So God creates woman. Woman becomes man's partner in every function as only a counterpart truly could. The Hebrew word for helper, by the way, is the word ezer, E-Z-E-R, E-Z-E-R. It also has a connotation. Now, see, here's the problem with the word helper. I know right away. Helper, in our mind, automatically seems subservient. I have the leader, and I have the helper. I have the boss, I have the servant. But if we embrace that definition, we have lost the power and strength of the word helper. Again, I would contend that that definition of helper is is a part of the fall, and we'll see that in just a moment. The same exact word. Here's the reason I don't believe that this is a word of, 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 of lesser 
or of weakness, because the exact same word is used to define God. In Exodus 18.4, it says this, The other was named Eleazar, for he said, My father's God was my helper. He's basically saying the name of God is helper. My father's God was my helper. He saved me from the sword of Pharaoh. This is a definition of Moses, one of his sons, he's naming them. In Psalm 33.20, we have the exact same word again. We wait in hope for the Lord. He is our helper. He is our help and our shield. I believe God being called helper brings honor to the position. A helper is not someone who is inherently inferior, but rather denotes someone helping the one with primary responsibility. Not only that, but in a a certain way, who is the one weak here? Well, if the man didn't need help, he wouldn't need a helper. In other words, there's something he can't fulfill on his own. So he needs someone to come alongside of him to help him complete the task that God has assigned. I believe it's a position of strength and not a position of weakness as God originally designed it. Ephesians 5.24, where we look at definitions of wives so often, we say, so wives should also submit to their husbands, but that's preceded by Ephesians 5.20, which says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. When we speak of order within the home, we usually look at it as here and here. But I would say that God's design for the home is one of complementing one another. It's one of teamwork. It's one of coming together. By complementing, too, it's not that idea of complementing, oh, don't you look beautiful today? That idea of complementing, it's that I have a strength, she has a strength. When we come together, her strength helps my weakness, my weakness helps her, my strength helps her weakness. So that together we complement each other. We're stronger as a result. The challenge that we have in our fallen state is that we generally see people who are different than us as less than us. Hello? Come on, guys. You think this. If my wife just thought like I thought, oh, how much better this relationship could be. What are you saying when you say that? You're saying your way of thinking is better than her way of thinking, inherently. And wives, you look at your husbands and you think, oh, if he could just feel what I'm feeling, or if he could feel anything at all, then this relationship would be so much better. What are you saying? You're saying your emotions are better than his emotions. We usually don't see someone who's different than us as equal in value, dignity, and worth. Hello? We usually see it as less than, and we're all guilty of this. But when a husband and wife compliment one another, you say, her way of thinking is different than my way, but it's just as valuable. And God has placed her in my life to help me see angles that I would not have seen otherwise. We're stronger together than different. Embrace those differences. Embrace them to understand how God has made us. So Eve was given to Adam, and together in perfect harmony, they worked together to fulfill God's purpose. They complement one another. She is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. 
But then it all goes south. Beware of the hurdles of sin. In Genesis 3, 6, again, where we said, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some, she ate it, she gave it to the husband, the man who was there with her, and he ate it. The sin entered the world as a result of them disobeying God's commands. And from there, everything disintegrates. And in a sense, I would say that what God originally intended for husband and wife becomes so perverted and so destructive because the wages of sin is death, and death touches us at every aspect of our lives, that it's even hard to have this discussion without us kind of raising our walls and and raising our flags and saying, yes, but if I do that, then what are they going to do to me? If I act in this way, then how are they going to act? And if they act in that way, how am I going to act? And the, the consequences of sin are so devastating around us. In chapter 3, verse 16, after um, they eat the fruit and they hide and God finds them and he says, what have you done? And they tell him and he speaks to them about the consequences of their actions. And he says to the woman, we looked at the male aspect of this last week, but he says to the woman, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. I'm not even going to address the whole childbirthing part. Uh, I'm I'm a real expert. I've been present for five childbirths, so I'm not going to even address that aspect of it. Um, I'm not sure what it looked like before the fall, what it might have entailed, but there's a part of it, the curse, so to speak, the result of sin, I would say, that is pain for childbirth. But I want to look at this word desire. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. I believe that desire, when in order, is a good thing. But desire, when out of order, brings many, many devastating consequences. In James 1, 4 and 14 and 15, James says this, But each one is tempted when by his own, what? Evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Desire and order is not necessarily a bad thing, but out from God's design, which is all about sin. See if you can stay with me just for a second. I know you can. I just don't know if I can communicate it well. Sin enters the world. What should have been a good desire between a husband and wife is now out of whack. Because the wages of sin is death, it's touched desire within a woman, in a way that disorders it and drives her, I believe, to a place where she doesn't want to be. We're talking about Adam and Eve at this instant, but we are born into Adam and Eve, and the consequences of what they do have touched us all. This desire that God talks about for a husband and a wife, uh, a man and a woman, I believe if you push it out just a little bit, you'll see that it affects the way women view men. I believe it's how men treat women. I believe it's how a woman will respond to how men treat them. 
how women will respond to even other women around them. For example, we get caught up in this whole Jerry Maguire syndrome. You complete me. And among women particularly, I need a man to complete me. Which I believe in turn leads to oppression, it leads to bad decision making, Women, because of the oppressive view that men have then responded to this idea, then say, I don't need no man at all for anything. We're all touched by this in some way. Our culture is devastated by it. And I want to look at three specific words um, that I believe, just in my experience, and this is not comprehensive, and please do not hear it as condemning, Ladies, um, I, I'm, I'm speaking out of p- the position of a pastor and one who's counseled of what I, dis- I would perceive as desire gone awry. So give me grace, and uh, if you see yourself in this in any way, we're gonna, we, there's a way out at the end as well. So the first word I want to use when I'm talking about desire is the word comparison. Comparison, that's, as I've defined it, the disordered desire for approval and validation. In trying to find approval, there's this comparison that takes place among women. Um, If you get a group of moms together, they inevitably start talking about their children. Now, I think that's healthy in a certain way, but there's a certain underlying tone that I've heard over many times where it's really... I'm comparing my child to your child because if my child is doing at least as good as your child or better, then I'm doing good. I'm, I'm okay. I, I'm finding worth and value and dignity. They compare their husbands. They compare where they are. They compare whatever sphere they have. In an article by Julie Oliphant in The Telegraph, which is a British... Uh, paper. It's entitled this, Why Girls Check Out Other Girls. Just stay with me. Here's the quote. Like it or not, and she's addressing women here, like it or not, we're all guilty of it. Be it in an inconspicuous, be it an inconspicuous glance at the girl browsing the same clothes shop window as you are, or the rather more blatant stares at the girl sitting opposite on the tube. Well, that's Subway by the way, for us Americans, we just can't seem to help ourselves. And a recent study has confirmed it. Women spend more time checking each other out than they do the opposite sex. Why is that? There's this need that for comparison that goes on. She goes on and says this. According to Dr. Carolyn Walters, a body image woman's sexuality specialist. I had to say that very carefully, sorry. It's not just other women's clothes we're checking out either. It's practically every aspect of another woman's appearance, from hairstyle to tan, shape, size, even body hair and fat distribution, whatever we deem to be most important about ourselves. Women check other women out. Why? To compare how they're doing. By the way, women, this is just a side note. Um, if you saw in Starbucks the rear end of the girl in the yoga pants 
or you saw the woman's cleavage as she walked by and compared, don't even bother asking your husband if he saw it. <laughs> don't even, don't even, don't even, I'm just a helpful hint. There's no reason to even go there. Don't even ask. It's not good for either of you. So, so what's the worst possible thing we can do with people who are struggling with comparison? Oh, I know. Let's, let's give them every single one. Let's give every single one of them a phone that takes pictures so that they can take endless pictures of themselves. Then let's put it, let's create a format where they can put these pictures out there for everybody to see and then to judge whether they like them or not. Do you think women are getting, I mean, it's killing us. It's killing our, fem- our young girls to have this like or not like and the selfie craze that's going on. Why? Because there's this inherent sinful desire for comparison. And it's destroying the femininity of our girls. You may not see it as serious as I do, but I think it can be devastating in the world around us. And let me just say this. It starts early. It starts early. I have, I have three boys, as I said, and two girls. I've seen the way boys interact and the way girls interact. Here's my observation. Little girls are just plain scary. They are mean. They are exclusive. They will will let a girl be their best friend for two minutes, and the next thing she's on the outs, having nothing to do with her for no apparent reason. Other than if I compare myself to her, I may be weaker, so now she's, boom, on the outs. It is brutal out there among little girls. And the words that little girls say to each other are, or can be just undermining and cruel. Words are powerful. I, I know even with my own house, no one, no one has the power to tear me down quicker than my wife with her words. I mean, no one has that effect in my life. I mean, really, I, I, you, you could say probably some of the worst things about me, and I'm pretty callous. I mean, really, I, 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 really it won't affect me greatly, but let my wife say them. And they're devastating to me. Do you think there's a reason why the, the, the author of Proverbs said that a quarrelsome wife is like a constant dripping? Now, I, I'm not trying to condemn, but this is like old-fashioned waterboarding. <laughs> I mean, really, a constant dripping. Why? Because words are powerful. Words are powerful. He goes on and talks about, hey, it's better to live in the corner of an attic than in a house with a quarrelsome woman, or a desert. Go to the desert. Why? Because words are devastating. And words, many times, I believe, come out in this comparison environment. If I can, tear, if I can sink their balloon, my balloon seems higher. And therefore, I feel better about myself. Theodore Roosevelt says that comparison is the thief of joy. Could it be, ladies, that one of the reasons there's so little joy is because that instead of viewing your destiny in God and in Christ, you're viewing it in comparison to someone around you. That we've let comparison, this disordered desire for approval, 
and meaning in life drive us to a position of comparison. Second word, are we, are we, do we still love each other? Are we still having fun? Okay, here we go. Second de- uh, word that I've seen is this spirit of perfectionism that's on many women. The disordered desire for meaning or perfection, really, apart from Jesus Christ. In an article from The Atlantic, a business magazine entitled The Confidence Gap, this is from last year, authors Katie Kay and Claire Shipman, you may notice that I'm using all female authors today. Uh, That's purposeful. Um, Katie Kay and Claire Shipman state that women are less self-assured than men, and to succeed, confidence matters as, listen to this, ladies, confidence matters as much or more than competence. Confidence matters as much or more than competence. They basically point out the idea, and I'm paraphrasing here, it's a long article, that some loser guy who has absolutely no skills will look at a job and say, what the heck, I'll take a shot. I mean, guys are built in a certain way, many of us, where there's just like, we're so clueless. Hey, yeah, I could do that. What the heck? I'm going to give it a shot. Women, on the other hand, will lay back and wait until they're perfect at something before stepping out in it. And it's a result of confidence, and it starts very early. It starts in our words. It starts in our culture. You may have seen this ad. This is an ad from uh, the Super Bowl. Hi, Aaron. Show me what it looks like to run like a girl. My hair. Show me what it looks like to fight like a girl. (laughs) Now throw like a girl. Aw. So do you think you just insulted your sister? No. I mean, yeah, insulted girls, but not my sister. My name is Dakota, and I'm 10 years old. Show me what it looks like to run like a girl. Throw like a girl. Fight like a girl. What does it mean to you when I say run like a girl? It means run fast as you can. One of the reasons perfectionism is destroying our young ladies is because we have defined it in a certain way. That to be a girl is to be less than rather than embracing the difference in the way God has made us. Kay and Shipman in their article say this, study after study confirms that it is largely a female issue, one that extends through women's entire lives. We don't answer questions until we are totally sure of the answer. We don't submit a report until we've edited ad nauseum, and we don't sign up for that triathlon unless we know we are faster and fitter than is required. We fixate on our performance at home, at school, at work, at yoga class, even on vacation. We obsess as mothers, as wives, as sisters, as friends, as cooks, as athletes. The irony is that striving to be perfect actually keeps us from getting much of anything done. Perfectionism is deadly. It's deadly. And here's the reason it's deadly. Because you're not perfect. You don't have a perfect husband? Go ahead and say amen. It's fine. (laughs) 
you don't have perfect children, and your drive, your drive for perfectionism is actually driving those who love you away. Think of how many adult children dread going home to see their mom because they know when they get there, there are adult children who are very qualified to do anything, to do a lot of things, and yet when they get home, what are they going to be told? Exactly what they're doing wrong about everything that they're doing. And as a result, they're like, I just don't want to go. How many husbands have checked out of marriages because they feel like no matter what they do, there's going to be something else wrong? I I just did this. Rather than getting praise for what they just finished and accomplished, they're getting corrected for what is next. Now, wives feel like I'm just, and here's the word that's used, I'm just helping. I I know he wants me to help him. If I don't help him see what's wrong, who's going to help him? This is a definition of when helping hurts. And there's this inherent desire that we need to identify that says, I want it all to be perfect. It's never going to be perfect. It's never going to be everything correct and everything right. It's a disordered desire within, particularly women, can happen in men as well, but particularly within women, a disordered desire to try and make everything perfect around them. Let me just say this. It's killing you. It's killing you to do this. Why is it that women struggle, struggle with depression and anxiety at a much, much, much higher level than men? 85 to, 90%, 85 to 95% of people who struggle with eating disorders are women. On a recent college campus, 83% of the women interviewed were dieting. 83% of college students on one particular campus were dieting, and of those interviewed who were dieting, 50% of them were of normal weight or less. Perfectionism is a form of slavery. How can you ever be happy if everything has to be perfect? How can you ever rest if everything has to be perfect? You know, ladies, there are times where it's okay. Go to bed if your house is a mess. Don't feel like you have to clean it all up before you can go to sleep that night. It'll be there in the morning. Trust me, I've done this before. It's still there. (laughs) The only thing you have available to you is the righteousness of God that comes in Christ Jesus. Rest in him. Third, and I'm running out of time, but I really, I want to work through this. The third deadly word is control. The disordered desire to manage your relationships in order to fulfill your agenda. Now, historically, I understand, there has been so much out of a woman's control that she feels like if she can control at least the sphere that she has, then her world will be right. It's this idea that... um, and I'm not saying this is right, but it's this idea that says, okay, only the husband can drive the car, so I'm going to control the one driving the car, and therefore I'll get to where I want to be. Hello? 
I, I mean, I understand the mentality that's going on, but the spirit of control that takes over lives in order to fulfill an agenda that you have. Now, that's the key aspect, is fulfilling your agenda. In, instead of looking at God from, here's God's agenda, what does God want? We come up with an agenda, and we say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to manage all my relationships around me in order to fulfill my agenda. Paula Reinhardt, in her book, Strong Women, Soft Hearts, says this, Control is the most subtle of dynamics, as natural as the air you breathe. It's the insistence <clears throat> that your life follow a particular path. It's about having an agenda for your life, a picture of some ideal that is shaped usually in childhood. Control is trying to make life happen as best you can, here's the key, on your own. On your own. Kathy has found ways to engage me that don't make me feel like I'm being controlled. I remember one time a couple of years ago, she called, my, she called me at the office and asked for an appointment with me. So, because we were, we were going through a very difficult time, I was, I was checking out and I was doing some other stuff. And, I mean, but rather than me feeling controlled, like when I got home and her telling me all the things I was doing wrong, she actually called and made an appointment and asked if she could meet with me at Panera at 10 a.m. on a certain day. I thought, oh, this is going to be fun. We're going to have breakfast together. Um, she encouraged me. She pointed out to me some things. She corrected me. She told me some things that were going on both in my life and our life that needed help in such a way that I did not feel controlled, manipulated, mommed, hello, mothered, in a way that helped direct me and see some things that I needed to see. In other words, I'm not saying, ladies, take, take all of this off the table in such a way you never help your husband, you never point out anything that's ever wrong, you never, but there are ways to do it that you can, you can look at and make sure that this is not a desire that's disordered in your life, that's directing you in a certain way. Reinhardt goes on and says, control masquerades as strength, but it's really not. It's more like teeth-gritting determination or white-knuckled fear with an edge to it. Here's the great irony and pain of all of this. No matter how hard you try, your life is out of control. It is not really in your control. That's, That's totally an illusion anyway. Your life is to be controlled by the one who gives you life. It's sort of like King Midas who has this uh, touch that everything he, tur- he, everything he touches turns to gold. But really, in turn, when he's trying to control and turn things to gold, everything he touches actually dies. That's the ultimate effect of control in your lives. Look, the hour's late, I know, but just you're going to have to hang with me for 10 more minutes at least. And let's finish this. Because this past weekend there was a movie version of a book that was released. The movie version, the book was the fastest-selling paperback in history. It sold, it sold over 70 million copies in the U.S. alone, just of the paperback version, not to, not to even talk about the Kindle version and the hardback version. The author in 2013 made $95 million. The book, the book was bought 
and overwhelmingly read by women. And the story depicts a college student who, for all practical purposes, uh, has a, is stalked, controlled, and I think, from our definition, engages in a sexually abusive relationship with a business executive who happens to be a white male who's rich. And usually that's the key aspect, to be honest. It so, was so popular and read by so many women that it actually got its own name. It's called mommy porn. Now, the, there's many things about this um, that I would say are wrong. But to me, there's this incredible aspect of the, the schizophrenic nature of our culture where women are fighting for control but then are drawn to a literature where they are giving control away to somebody else, all in the name of romance, so much so that they're blinded by the abuse that's taking place. Here's what I would say. I I would want you to know that the enemy will destroy you in every way that he can. He doesn't fight fair. If If he can't destroy you on this end, he'll destroy you on this end. And these are just three of the words that I'm giving you from my experience in counseling women. Comparison, perfectionism, control. But you have a choice by the grace of God to either relinquish your life to him and, and have the power of the gospel to transform us or to go our own way. In Isaiah, the prophet says this, "'Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the word of his servant?' Let him who walks in the dark, who has no light, trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Now, usually light and dark are seen as light, good, dark, bad. In this instance, it's reversed a little bit. He's saying, look, if you're walking in dark, but you're trusting in God, go that way. If that's what God has for you, you're not sure, but you know you're trusting God, walk in the light. He says, here's the other alternative. But now, all you who light fires and provide yourselves with flaming torches, go walk in the light of your fires and of the torches you have set ablaze. This is what you shall receive from my hand. You will lie down in torment. In other words, if your disordered desire drives you to a place of comparison and perfectionism and control, in fact, what you're going to end up with is torture. Can we see that at work in our culture around us and even in our own lives? Third point, wake into the redemption that comes through Christ. I am not ashamed of the gospel because of the power of God for the salvation for everyone who believes. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Listen, the just going to live by faith. Here, here's the idea. The power of God is transformational. You don't have to stay here. Men, you don't have to stay selfish in your passivity or aggression. Women, you don't have to stay locked into these ideas of control or uh, comparison or perfectionism. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Praise God. We can be set free from these patterns of sinful behavior that rock our world and that can ultimately control us. Stand firm then. Don't let yourself be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. 
Now, I, I understand Paul's discussion here is really about you're free not to sin. You're free from the law. Uh, that's his real discussion here in Galatians. But I think it applies. It applies to this freedom from sin that we're all struggling with and within our culture. We're, we have the ability to be free at some level from what had been spoken. Christ came to reverse. Christ came to redeem. God, Christ came to establish God's kingdom purposes on this world. I'm a part of God's kingdom now. I'm not going to get all the benefits of it yet, but I can walk in a measure of freedom much greater than where I am or have been. Think about, think about this. What a, what a great environment would it be where men are spiritual, where men are caring about the physical needs of people around them, where men are um, loving people sacrificially. Now, I know those definitions are really within the home, but think of it in our culture and in our church and in our society where men are doing this. And think of a culture where women are, are, are standing strong to, to help and to, 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 to see things accomplished rather than comparing or tearing down or having to be perfect before they do something or trying to control and manipulate situations. Now, all, both of these things apply to both men and women in some sense. But it seems as if the tendencies have been crossways. And God is drawing us back to a place where we say we are a team together. We're a team in our home. We're a team in this church. We're a team to see God's purposes accomplished on this earth. Paul says this. How, how do we do this? So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. I, I think he's talking about the desires. <laughs> These disordered desires we're talking about. Look, I, I can either satisfy those disordered desires in an attempt to feel better about myself... Or I can walk by the power of the Spirit who indwells me. For the sinful nature desires what's contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They're in conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you want. But if you're led by the Spirit, then you're not under the law. As a result, we get to walk in the fruit of the Spirit when we're under the power of the Spirit, rather than letting our sinful desires control us. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. I'm challenging all of us, but just as last week I challenged men, I really want to say to the women here at Fullness, we have an opportunity to do incredible things for the Lord. But there are these tendencies that, because of what has occurred in our culture, in our lives, we're driven toward things like comparison and perfectionism and control. I believe God's freedom is here to set us all free in whatever position and place we may identify Stand up with me and let's pray. Here's what we're going to do.
We're going to pray, and um, then we're going to pray for one another. So as I pray, I'm going to ask our ministry teams to come to the front. Ministry teams to come to the front. And ladies, there are going to be some specific teams here just for women today. There will be some other teams. You, Let me back up just a little bit. If you're new to fullness, we have ministry time at every service. So if you're here and you need healing, direction, or freedom, there will be somebody to pray with you today. But in light of today's sermon, I thought it would be great if we had some strictly teams for women that were down here that could pray for women who in some way have said, you know what, that's me. I really want to be set free from that. Um, Would you just pray with me? Because I believe that by the power of the Spirit, we can be free. Now, I know that, again, the hour's late, but let's just hang in here just a little longer and let God do what he wants to do in the moments ahead. If you have to leave, I understand you can leave quietly. Let me pray for us. Pray for those who are going to receive ministry and then have a time of praying with one another. So as I pray, ministry teams, you come to the front. Lord, we thank you this morning that it is for freedom that you've set us free. And I pray, God, that you would just take uh, the words I've spoken this morning and whatever is of you, God, just bring it to light in people's lives. Let the Spirit of God uh, come and reveal truth in people. Lord, I pray especially for... Uh, the women of Fullness Christian Fellowship. I pray, Lord, for freedom to rule and reign in their hearts and their lives today. I pray, Lord, that uh, you would help us all, but especially the women today as we've been speaking to them, that you would help them identify areas of their life in which they need freedom today. So God, we ask for your move here. Just do what you want in the moments ahead. If you need prayer, just come right now as Adrian leads us in worship.